0: Which is like, what does that mean? I don't know. So can I tell you what I've like been thinking about? Yeah, tell me. Okay, so you know how I, I, I called you the other day. I was telling you about how I was reading Matthew. Okay. Yeah, so um, I got to Matthew 12, and it's that part where... You know, the the Pharisees are complaining to Jesus about his disciples working on the Sabbath or something.
1: Right.
0: Here, I'm just going to read Matthew 12:1 through 8. Okay. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's Matthew one or Matthew 12, one through eight. Um, have you heard anything about that? Like, the question that came to my mind is, okay, well, why was David allowed to eat the bread that only the priests were allowed to eat?
1: Uh, have you read the story of David eating the bread? Yeah. It, the story, as I remember it, um, I'm pretty sure it's in 1 Samuel. It strikes me as a strange. 1 Samuel
0: 21. Yeah, I'll, I'll read that real quick.
1: Oh, so you have the story First Samuel.
0: Up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have it because like, I had to do some research into thinking, okay, wait, why? Okay. First uh, Samuel 21, 3 through 6. Now then, what do you have on hand? This is David talking to the priest, you know, fleeing from Saul. He comes up to the priest. They don't have any food, so he asks him. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be placed by hot bread on the day it is taken away.
1: So that's that's interesting. What is the... Uh... What's the what's the problem here, I guess?
0: So the problem comes whenever you look at the Levitical Law. Leviticus twenty two, ten through eleven, it says, A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign quest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. Okay. And that's verse ten.
1: So David's um, breaking the law. We see right here.
0: That's what it looks like. He's, and that's what Jesus had mentioned to them. He said, Alright. Look, it looks like what they're doing is wrong, but if you actually understand the word, you'll understand. Well, so, so I had to why do some research?
1: Why isn't this wrong?
0: Because of verse 11 in Leviticus 22. It says, "But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food."
1: now that's kind of interesting but the priest didn't buy david as a slave that's right okay so but okay
0: but who's the priest the priest is god's servant like the representative of god okay right okay okay so this is this is uh foreshadowing for jesus so the priest buys david brings him into the family of God. God has bestowed grace upon him. And thus he, he is bought with a price as in a slave and has become a son, as it says, anyone born to his house. And now what is the bread? Well, the first thing I think of is communion. It's Jesus. It's Jesus's body. And what's also very interesting is in some of these, it talks about "and anyone born in his house, meat of the meat and there's another verse in Leviticus uh, 2, 1 through 7. Or, no, in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, it talks about how, you know, sometimes meat and bread are used interchangeably, like word-wise. And so I think that's very interesting. Meat, which is flesh. Bread, which is Jesus's flesh represented in communion. Right. Is... What is bestowed upon David when he becomes, when he is bought with a price and is then allowed to eat of it?
1: Okay. I thought that was really interesting.
0: So, what do you think?
1: I, I think it's symbolic, but I also think maybe there's a practical means by which we can relate that to ourselves today. And that my question is is David only allowed to? eat this food? Is he only allowed to break the law insofar as he's able to eat this food? Or is he allowed to do whatever he wants as far as breaking the law goes?
0: I don't really see where you get that question from. Because this is this seems like a very specific law that has a specific caveat to it. Also, I think you have to remember that the law, the law in a sense, is Jesus. Because... Jesus is the word. The law is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus was perfect. The law is perfect. Jesus is the standard that we as individuals try to live up to, but ultimately fail. And the law was the standard that the Israelites had to live up to, but ultimately failed. The problem with the law was that it was... Focused on the outside reflection of inward motivations, but it didn't place enough motivation, enough emphasis on the inward motivations. And that's why Jesus comes out and in the Sermon on the Mount, he just like takes the things that they say in the law and takes it to the extreme. He says, all right, you you say adultery is bad, but I say if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You say murder's bad, but I say that if you anyone who hates his brother or says you fool, that's murder. He murdered him in his heart, and it's just like these extreme views. But he came here to teach. The Jews like that. That's kind of what he was talking about at that time. He was teaching the Jews that, hey, look, this is the point of the law. And that's why he keeps bringing up, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which if you read through the Old Testament, you see that littered everywhere as God's trying to explain it, but they don't get it. And I think we don't get it a lot of times, but it's, it's about the heart.
1: Okay. So what would, what would you say to me then? If I said that now that I've become a Christian, now that Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice and now that I recognize that I can't do anything to get to heaven, it's it's through his blood alone that I'm justified before God. I'm free to sin. Right. I'm free to do whatever I want. Because in the end, it's it's all him. It's him who forgives me. What what do you say to what do you say about that?
0: Well, first of all, I say that that goes to what I was saying. It's the heart that's that if you're sinning all the time and not repenting, I'd question I'd question where your heart is, and yes, you you will sin all the time. I sin all the time but but if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying it's a remorseless kind of haha, yeah, yes, now I can do whatever. And maybe you're not saying that. That is what I'm saying.
1: It's playing the game as well as you can based on what's in Scripture, which is it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God. And if you take that to its logical end, I think you come up with this conclusion that you can do whatever you want.
0: Romans six two By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk. world. Well, what if in the we still
1: love our sin? What if, what if we still like doing things that we know deep down we ought not to do?
0: Now I think those are two different two different things. You said what if we love our sin and what if we like doing What is the difference?
1: Things?
0: Well, I think love and like there's a big difference. Like is focused on more of a like at least the connotation it's focused more on an immediate kind of I like this, I like that. But love is more of a state of being. Or at least that's what I, that's like my first impression, think. Like, that's what first comes to mind. I don't know. I I do do think
1: there's a difference between love and like. Because I think like implies more of an attraction between two people. And I think love implies more of a choice of the will. Kind of what we were talking about in our podcast about the love of friendship. Like, I think, is that natural affinity Mm -hmm. that two people can have. For each other whereas love I believe is a it's a choice of the of the will it's it's a it's a choice and maybe an emotion follows the choice but I think love still is a choice but going back to my earlier question about whether Christians can do whatever they want now that they've been saved by grace alone and and that they're no longer working to attain salvation do you know who John Piper is
0: okay. yeah he's the desiring so god my guy so my
1: friend recently brought this concept that John Piper uh, talks about to my attention and he calls it Christian hedonism and apparently it's a pretty controversial concept that that he's come up with but it goes something like this John Piper would say Yes, I can do all of these things. I can lie. I can murder. I can steal. I can uh, engage in the other sinful activities that that I ought not to do. That that is not considered righteous to do. And I can, at the end of my end of my life, ask Jesus to save me, and He will. He says this, and then He adds a counterpoint, and He says, "But I don't want to." He doesn't want to do these things anymore. It's not in his desires to do these things anymore because he's had a change of heart, and I think that's what the Christian life is about, is the change of heart that Jesus produces within us. And that actually is a really good segue into the the kind of the question of our broadcast, and that question is how can we bridge the gap between the head and the heart? How can we bridge the gap between our reason what we know in our minds and what we feel in our hearts because if we can bridge the gap then i think we are integral in and in who we are and what we do that is if we can bridge the gap then we can know the right thing to do and we can also want to do the right thing and there's not that inner struggle within ourselves to actually get ourselves to do the want to want to do the right thing it's it's just natural because it's it's part of our being i believe and C.S. Lewis, in his, in his book, The Abolition of Man, writes a chapter titled Men Without Chests. And toward the end of this chapter, it's the first chapter of the book, he states, uh, and I'm quoting right now, With the, Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism In battle, it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of bombardment. And he goes on to say, As as the king governs by his executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. The head rules the belly through the chest. And basically, in, in... In summary of that chapter, he presents an argument that states, or goes along these lines, he believes that modern thinkers have made a very fatal flaw in encouraging the youth to ignore their emotions and live by sheer reason alone. And he also believes that if we can bridge the gap between the head and the heart, then we can rule through our will so much more effectively than than if Than if we have no chests and a lot of problems he believes that we encounter today are due to the fact that we are quote men without chests and i want to know what you thought about that
0: it's interesting um so right now i'm reading meditations by marcus aurelius i mentioned that to you but The reason I'm bringing that up is because he he is an example of what I think a lot of people realize, is that they realize that the pleasures of this world are fleeting. They realize that selfishness is pointless in the long run. He realizes that... Reason, which he uses with a capital R, meaning that since he's, even though he's Roman, he writes in Greek for this, uh, which in Greek would be logos, which is also what Christian theologians have referred to whenever John mentions um, the word in John 1.1. 1, 1. He mentions logos, which is the word, which is Jesus. And he talks about devotion to that. So I think, I think when you were saying that Christian hedonism, I think it's a we don't want to. I think, I think a lot of people recognize that that they don't want to do that. That doesn't exactly go with with what you you were saying, but I'm gonna read a little out of um, his writing. It's um, Meditations, Book Three, little section 16 it says body soul mind to the body belongs sense perceptions to the soul impulses to the mind judgment the receipt of sense impressions is shared with cattle response to the puppet strings of impulses is shared with wild beasts with catamites with Phalaris or a nero like nero the emperor having the mind as a guide to what appears appropriate action is shared with those who don't who don't who do not believe in God, those who betray their country, those who get up to anything behind closed doors. And then he goes on to talk about, well, he goes on to talk about a lot of stuff. But I think it's very interesting as how even Marcus Aurelius, a pagan, recognizes the need to unite body, soul, and mind, which for us, we would reference as, you know, our mind um our spirit and our body people call the it kind of body insane.
1: appetites too but c.s lewis believes that the way to unite body soul and mind or reason spirit and body or appetites is through the emotions and when i say emotions i mean emotions is synonymous with spirit it's the head rules the belly through the chest the reason rules the appetite appetites through the spirit and if you can get the spirit on your side, you can convince the appetites, from then to, from there to do what you want them to do, and you can effectively rule them. It's the idea that the head is the authoritative figure, but the spirit is the the ex the executive, the one who executes and the one who can influence as well. But here, here's my here's here's my question you know it's because I I, I've said this before I listened to a lot of uh, dr. Ravi Zacharias and in in his one of his sermons called mind the gap he talks about how the longest distance in the world is between the head and the heart and once you traverse this gap you've traversed this longest distance And here's my question. How do you traverse that gap? How do you get from the head to the heart? What are some ways to do that? And I want to start by asking you this. Do you think we have direct influence over what we feel? Can we will ourselves to feel sad at a given moment? Can we somehow force ourselves to feel happy at another given moment? Do you think we have that type of control? And you don't have to answer in a long answer unless you want to.
0: I mean, it's not that simple. It's not yes or no. It's like a well obviously to some degree but also obviously not What do you mean to some
1: degree we can?
0: Like if I say alright, I will myself to be sad I can begin to think about sad things. And Some degree, I will start feeling sad. I can no, let me let me mention this to you. So, um, there's this interesting phenomena where it's the position that your body is in changes your mood. So, if you start frowning and looking down and slouching, that'll like start making you feel feel sadder but if you stand up straight with your shoulders back which is the first You'll chapter more of 12 rules for life
1: no I, I want to have
0: you read that yes it inc- it increases your serotonin like it or at least higher serotonin at least gives you that bo- it's it's interesting you, you'd have to look into it more um, but we w- what i think and this is kind of goes back to even more psychology with neuroplasticity is that what we think like just something that comes into our head can affect what we do such as purposely putting up roadblocks to abstain okay. from a certain habit or something like that. Um, like if you're addicted to social media, deleting it off your phone um, or maybe even deleting your account. If you want to have like, if you have that extreme initial surge of, So, but it sounds like
1: you're saying
0: it can lead to, wait, wait, no, so then I'm saying that leads indirectly to action. It leads to action. Yes. And then that action, whether it's your body posture or the fact that there is no social media on your phone can therefore lead back into your brain and your thought, which can begin to start breaking down that habit or maybe can influence your brain chemistry so it's like a you remember yeah. from You Are What You Love, that book yeah. by James K. A. Smith. What we feel and what we think affects what we do and what we think and what we do affects what we feel and what we think and what we love. It's like it's a it's a feedback loop. It's a right. cycle. But
1: the relationship between our between our what we will what we force ourselves to do and what we feel i don't think is that direct and i it it doesn't sound like you think it's that direct either it's not like i can't will myself to feel happy in the same way that i can will myself to lift up my arm because i can just lift up my arm just by just desiring to do it and this is actually pretty phenomenal it's not that i even give myself in my brain words in the form of the command okay john lift up your arm it, it, it's not like that it's just i do it I, I i do it when i want to and okay so maybe i can put my body in a certain posture that'll make me more likely to feel a certain emotion maybe i can do things that'll make me more likely to feel a certain emotion but at the same time it's not like willing my my arm to go up or 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 to go down it, it's kind of do this and see what happens as a result and for this reason I think emotions affect us much like outside forces much like forces we really don't have too much of control over it they affect us at times when we don't want them to and at, at other times when it's good that we do affect them and and it, it's spontaneous but at the same time it feels a bit random how they do affect us and yeah I, so for that reason I I would say that we do things that we guess or expect in advance will make us happy but we don't know in advance whether happiness will come about as a result so for, I would say that we don't have direct influence over what we feel but i've also heard that emotions are a mere product of our expectations have you have you heard this before so mm, emotions no, that's interesting and this is the way the theory goes I haven't heard that before. emotions are a product of our expectations so if our expectations are met we feel content or satisfied if our expectations are exceeded we can feel overjoyed but if our expectations are not met and prove too high then we become deflated and dejected and experience negative emotions. And I think there's a bit of truth to this. I think maybe this oversimplifies the relationship between expectations and emotions, but I do think there's some truth to it. And so here's my follow-up question for you Will. Do you think we have the ability to influence our expectations? Can we do can we will ourselves to change and satisfy or change uh, and alter our expectations in the same way that we can will ourselves to lift up our arms? hmm
0: you know I'm not sure, but before I get to trying to parse that through, there is one thing that I wanted to mention something that you were talking about so my gripe with meditations is that i think it places too much emphasis on i alone can can do these things and will myself to avoid counterproductive emotions that's and maybe to some extent i i agree that to some extent you can do that such as through well meditating on God's word, um, through the spiritual disciplines, journaling. Like I believe that, to some extent, you, you can, such as changing your body posture. But you talked about how emotions act on us like right. outside forces. There's this, there's this very, very interesting theory that I heard um, it's by some, some famous 20th century psychologist. I do not remember which one. Basically, it was that our emotions are what the ancient people or, you know, people a long time ago referred to as spirits or gods. I was like, what? And then he went on to mention about how, you know, anger, like it it seems like it just takes over you. You know, like you've been, like something's possessing you. And they called that aries or mars you know god of war rage anger it's like okay and then or such as lust aphrodite you know it's like these things it's just like they possess you i thought that was very interesting about how even a long time ago people thought about how our emotions act on us like an outside force and to some extent i i agree that they do and that's that's part of the nature of humans. I mean, of course we have emotions. Why? Psh, uh, dude, I don't know. And to what extent can we will our expectations to affect those emotions?
1: You don't think we I don't can know change if our expectations? Can.
0: Because, yeah, well, I said I said I don't know if we can Maybe I'll change my mind just thinking about it. But what I think about in high school, if I was like getting a test back, you know, I'd want like a really like an A or something. But I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to expect something really low that way I can hopefully exceed well so expectations can you feel good about
1: it can you bombard yourself and with enough thought enough negative thoughts can you just pour enough negative thoughts into your mind that makes you that makes you change your expectations that somehow expectations are results of a massive amount of thoughts that are just traveling through your mind it, it is that the way it works is it do you determine it in mass
0: well let me tell you that i don't know But I can tell you that the reason why I couldn't change my expectations in that sense was there's too much hope. It was like, uh, there's definitely a chance that I could have done this.
1: What's the relationship between hope and expectations? Because that's really interesting. There's too much hope.
0: I don't know if... Well, let's think about it. The more we expect
1: but what is greater hopes we have it it sounds like hope is not an emotion then
0: i think it's more than emotion it's like it's like love It's more than an emotion and maybe that's why maybe that's why paul references these three remained faith hope and love because those are emotions in one sense but also more than does
1: hope imply uncertainty as if there's a chance that it won't happen
0: Yeah, uh, I think so, or at least that's how we use
1: the word. Huh. That that see that doesn't make sense based on my conception of expectation, and I'll I'll relate it to this. Okay, I believe expectations are solely determined by reality, and I was thinking about this and you know, the most obvious example came into my mind, and that's of a pregnant woman who's expecting a child, okay? That's liter- That's what we call it.
0: That's not, not first what came well, into my mind.
1: We, but, yeah. we would say that she is expecting, right? Like, it, It's... The, yeah. The words are given, I think. Um, and I think she can only claim to be expecting a child if and only if reality has determined in advance that she will give birth in nine months okay so there's an actual event that takes place um, and you know to put it in biological terms I'll call it the the fertilization of the egg cell by the sperm cell and this actual event determines her expectations but on the other hand if she's a virgin she will not give birth to a child at the end of nine months regardless of how hard she tries to expect because Reality hasn't determined in advance that she will. It's, I, I think that's a clear example of how reality determines expectations. But going back to hope, say she is expecting a child. Do, do we say that she she hopes to give birth at the end of nine months? I mean, take out all the all the outside factors, the the fact that it's possible that she could have a miscarriage or or die, or, or, or something else strange could happen, at the end of nine months, at the end of her time, like, she's gonna give birth to a, a child, is it still appropriate to say that she hopes to give birth at the end of nine months? Because it, it, as far as it seems to me, it doesn't appear as if there's uncertainty about what will happen.
0: I find it interesting what you said. Expectations, are what did you say, are a manifestation of reality. I think this goes back to what we were talking about on the very first podcast, with what it okay. means to know something. So, what you know is that when someone's pregnant, they will probably give birth, because I've seen it so many times. I can expect that that's what's happening. And I guess you could use the word hope, but it doesn't seem appropriate, you know? So I'm not sure which precedes the other. In this case, I think it would be, uh, I'm hoping to get pregnant, and then I'm expecting to give birth.
1: But see, go back to, let's go to Romans 5, 3 through 5, I believe. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame, right? There's no chance that what we hope for, if it is true, can be wrong. And therefore, it cannot put us to shame. But it's maybe the uncertainty maybe the doubt comes in when we say if it is true right i don't know i I, here's what i think say we already have salvation say we are already sons of god being christians say that jesus has already justified us before the father time i think is still between us and and the moment when our faith becomes our sight that is when, when we know, because we see God, I think, I I don't know, but that's, that's what strikes me right now. And so say it is already a fact and say at the same time, that only time can reveal this fact. It is already true, but at the same time, I can still have doubts. About whether it is true or not because time has not yet revealed it to be true and I wonder if hope plays in somewhere in this equation if if hope lies somewhere between something being true and time having yet to reveal that it's true and I wonder if hope is that which tells us right now this is true get ready because it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome and i don't know what do you think will
0: (laughs) i definitely (laughs) hope so (laughs) um you know i hadn't thought about it like that
1: i i think hope i i think hope hope might be the byproducts hope itself might be the byproduct of us living in the realm of time because if god exists outside of time and if he's creator, then he also created time, which means there's a realm of existence in which God exists that is not mediated by time, that that the, that the mesh and the material in which existence takes place is not time. Whereas here on earth and here in, in this universe, it is. I don't I don't know why it is, but I know it it is that we exist in space and time. But if God exists outside of these things, maybe He doesn't exist in a medium because He creates mediums. But if He exists outside, maybe hope is only something that is known inside this medium because it's a it's something that reveals us something about the outside, right? Something about God's realm of existence. And maybe that's where hope is. It's hope, I think, directs our eyes to a different dimension. That's, yeah.
0: That kind of goes with what C.S. Lewis always talks about, about how God is in a sense on another dimension, meaning, you know, the fourth dimension being time and the fifth dimension being time is all time is like space Meaning you can go forward and backward and left and right meaning different possibilities uh i had been reading this book called unceasing worship and uh it's very like hard to read it it, it's like i could not make sense of what he was saying but he says that he talks about faith hope and love he says We can connect our thinking about hope to that of faith by saying, first, that hope is the forward joy of substance and evidence. Hope is not something we lay hold of in the absence of substance. We cannot afford to to say that because there is no substance and evidence now. I will hope that, and it will appear sooner or later. This regulates hope to a conditional role that depends more on the quantitative concept of substance or an evidence which is like what does that mean I don't know
1: it, it sounds it sounds like he would agree that hope and expectation though we haven't been able to really pinpoint the relationship are in some sense related and that expectations are determined by reality that we don't will expectations in a vacuum that reality itself is what determines expectations well, do you mind if right before we um, if before we close we return to this question that I that I had, which was how? Yeah.
0: Before we do that, can yeah. I just mention one more verse on hope that I guess the people listening can think about? Um, it's Romans okay. eight twenty four um, and twenty five. For in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for okay. it with patience so i guess it goes back to the hope being
1: yeah as a function Because of we time, don't yet see it
0: meaning it's in the future interesting
1: mm-hmm. i don't i don't really know how how to bring this back full circle right here but going back to our question how can we bridge the gap between the head and the heart how can we make what we hope for how can we make that felt within ourselves I guess and how can we make what we know in our minds how can we turn that into a felt reality in our hearts
0: spiritual disciplines prayer reading the Bible meditating on God's Word fasting journaling so
1: we can do I can't think of anything else it sounds like you're I saying we do all I these things to maybe or to for maybe, God to act in us okay so maybe if we will ourselves to know the creator it is the creator himself who changes our hearts and regardless of how much we try we cannot change our feelings like like we can ch- like we can change our clothes, you know. It, it's it's something that we just wait for. But I think as we know the Creator, and we know Him as He's revealed Himself in His Son Jesus Christ. I think He's the one who changes our hearts. Why He doesn't do it quicker? Why why He doesn't do it on demand? I don't know, but I think. As time passes, change is evident in, in people's lives. I, I think that's true. And how do you know the creator? Hmm. I, yeah. I think you just ask him to reveal to reveal himself to you. I think you just ask that he would show him to you because you know, maybe you're skeptical, and I'm not speaking to you, well, but maybe you are. Maybe maybe someone's skeptical about whether or not he exists. But if he does and if he knows all things and if he you know is creator of the world, then I think he knows us. And I think he also hears it when we pray because because he's God. And maybe we can't fathom that he can hear everything, but I think it's I think it's a necessity of him being God that he does hear everything. And I think if we just ask him to reveal himself to us, yeah, he will if he is who he says he is
0: yeah and i think that he has revealed himself to us a, a tiny fraction of what he can in your lifetime through a the conscious that he's placed in us b his word and c through jesus through example that right. he and set.
1: i think connecting the head and the heart in this sense, is a matter of making his revelation personal and making it real to me, not just making it real in an abstract sense, but making yeah. it real to me. I think if God becomes real to me, then I've successfully connected, or then He has successfully bridged the gap between the head and the heart. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I've actually got to get going. Yeah. Do you have any? I, I really do too. Okay. I'm about to get kicked out of this room that
0: I'm in. Um, All <laughs> so I will. Uh, I'll see you, John. Bye.